This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. On the night Anthony Albanese was elected, he promised an end to the so-called climate wars. But the new Labor government has been met immediately with an energy crisis. The cold winter and the war in Ukraine has put enormous pressure on the energy market. Soaring prices and the threat of blackouts have pushed the grid to the limit. Meanwhile, the Greens are pressuring the new government to veto any new coal or gas plants and improve on what they view as a modest reduction plan. So as we ramp up to a new parliament, will Labor see this crisis as an opportunity for more ambition on climate? Or will they play it safe, taking a page out of the old playbook and rely more on fossil fuels to bridge the gap as we transition to lower emissions alternatives? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisha about climate politics in an energy crisis. It's Friday, the 24th of June. We came out of the election feeling very excited about the message that voters had sent about action on climate change. We always knew Labor's target was 43% by 2030, but now we're starting to see some of the details of that policy. Is there still cause for excitement, Lenore? Yes, I think... Overall, yes. You know, Anthony Albanese said in his victory speech he wanted to end the climate wars. Labor, as you say, has a tougher or more acceptable target for greenhouse gas cuts. Yes, it's certainly more hopeful than where we were or where we have been, but I think there are a couple of buts emerging in the debate. One is some of the policies of the former government that Labor is now embracing to try to deal with this real mess that they've inherited after 10 years of the coalition doing bugger all on climate policy mean that we're probably going to be paying to keep coal-fired power stations going for longer than they would have otherwise. Now that probably, I mean we haven't seen all the detail yet, it probably won't affect our ability to reach the 43% target. But you have to remember the 43% target was our fair share of more like a two degrees of global warming than a 1.5 degrees. And electricity generation is such a big part of our national emissions that even a bit of backsliding on power generation emissions is probably concerning. I guess in the other but which we might come to later, is that Labor had this very cautious policy during the election of saying if fossil fuel developments, coal mines, gas fields, whatever, are stacked up environmentally and commercially, they'd still go ahead under Labor. And, you know, there are a lot of coal fields and gas fields on the books in Australia. So that's the other but. And they're the two places, I think, where the rub will come in terms of Labor's climate credentials as they start to actually legislate and act on them. Hmm. I mean, obviously they knew that this was going to come into focus very quickly after the election, but it's come into focus even more quickly and more dramatically than they might have expected with the energy crisis because of the supply crisis and the and the price 
huge price rises globally in to, to a large extent caused by you know numerous factors that are, that are well known the war in Ukraine and so on and also uh, breakdowns in coal-fired power stations locally and that has kind of pushed these questions in you know the nitty-gritty of the of the details of how they'll how they'll manage that uh, very much into the forefront even more quickly than they might have expected and unfortunately for them it got really bloody cold. <laughs> That as well. You know, every crisis is an opportunity, right? So maybe in some ways it's not so bad from uh, the government's point of view that this has happened right now because it's very easy for them to paint it as a result of the coalition's policies, which to a large extent it is, and not be blamed for it themselves, mm. even though mm. uh, even though the opposition will try to do that. But that's not very convincing given we're only a few weeks into the new government. Yeah. So they do have the chance to kind of pick up that ball and run with it more ambitiously perhaps than they might have done otherwise. But that also carries risks with it as well. What are the risks? Well, I guess the risks are that if they pursue a more renewables-friendly solution to the crisis that we've had in the past few weeks, you know, they're trying to balance several things, right? There's the emissions policy, which is obviously crucially important. There's price and there's reliability of supply. Those are not necessarily in conflict, but if they fail on reliability in the future and the opposition run the line as they inevitably will, that that's a result of being too ambitious on climate, on emissions, then that's a political problem. And so they are obviously highly aware of that coming down the track later on. Um, so that's a challenge. Right? There's, not, there's not necessarily an obvious way to get around that. <laughs> so this week the um, Energy Security Board said the capacity mechanism might have to include coal. Lenore, can you just explain what that actually means both on a practical level and for Labor's policy? Okay, so the energy market is in transition and we have to sort of bridge this gap between retiring coal-fired power and getting sufficient renewables into the grid. And there's this sort of gap in transmission and storage as we switch out. Capacity mechanism was recommended to the former government and then again to this government, and it basically means coal-fired generators get paid for not just for generating the actual power that they're supplying, but for the capacity that they could potentially produce even when there's a risk of supply outages, like when it gets really cold. And on the face of it, that kind of makes sense, but there are problems with it. We do need coal-fired power stations to limp on for a while because we don't yet have enough firmed capacity from renewables. But I think this particular solution has a couple of problems. One is it's expensive. It's a really expensive way to make sure we have reliable power. Another is it becomes almost like a chicken and egg situation because much of the new renewable investment we want to come into the system is dependent on knowing that coal-fired power is imminently on its way out. So if we're paying coal-fired power to not be imminently on its way out and go too far down that path, then the renewable investment won't come in as quickly. Those two things have got to be balanced. There's been a bunch of other solutions to this same quite complicated problem of transition in the energy market. One of them was that a reliability obligation that was in Malcolm Turnbull's National Energy Guarantee, which was essentially designed to address the same problem, but it just meant that it set sort of continued capacity as a requirement rather than paying the coal-fired generators to hang around. Or 
legislating to make the withdrawal of coal more certain so the alternatives would be sped up. I mean, that's a long, complicated discussion, but there are a lot of people in the market questioning the capacity mechanism idea. Chris Bowen, the minister, has said he's going to give it a go and they've set a timetable and they're going to look at it. But I think even some of the state governments are questioning the wisdom of paying coal-fired generators to stick around for reliability reasons or questioning how that should be done because it could have unintended consequences. Mm. And there's no guarantee even by paying them that they will stick around. As mm, some true. critics have pointed out, they could just give back the money if it became too expensive or un- impractical to keep the keep their generators going long enough. They can just give up on, on getting that bonus and, and still not be around to do what it was supposed to do. There are also other options that have been proposed, perhaps that this kind of mechanism would only apply to new generation that comes on stream, which obviously would, you know, that takes much longer, but is much more likely to be renewables. Mm. Or as Ali Stegel has proposed, that we should bring on something more like based on the previous renewable energy target, but have a renewable energy storage target, which would drive investment in renewables. But again, it's debatable whether all of these will have the immediate, you know, this is quite a, a looming crisis as, we, as we've seen mm. <laughs> already this winter, and this has to be done quite quickly. So it's questionable yeah. whether all these things could happen quickly enough to guarantee supply over the, over the short term. And the brutal politics of the situation for Labor is that they're tiptoeing their way out of the climate wars, but the politics of there being blackouts early in their term would be bad for them and they want to avoid that at all costs. And I think they're in this balance between the emissions consequences of some of these proposed solutions and the certainty that you're not going to get brownouts or blackouts or load shedding, they're kind of opting more on the certainty side of that equation. You know, they came damn close these last few weeks by and had to suspend the market and it looks like that sort of immediate crisis has passed and that crisis they could convincingly and properly blame on the former government. But if the crises keep coming, the ability to do that will diminish. And so I think politically they want the certainty. There's no absolute guarantee that the capacity mechanism, if introduced as the ESB has proposed, would involve coal-fired power. Mm. They've left it up to the states to decide which power sources it would apply to. Victoria has already said uh, ruled out coal and gas. New South Wales has ruled out coal but not gas. Queensland, which has whose coal plants are somewhat newer, coal-fired power stations are somewhat newer, has said it will consider coal as well. So there's a variety of responses there. Some people have questioned whether that's a sensible way to go about it that will not produce a nationally consistent response. But it doesn't necessarily mean a requirement that coal should be part of the mix, but uh, it is an option. An option. Yeah. And what about the coalition, Lenore? How are they managing this? Mm, I think the technical word is complete schmuzzle. <laughs> Peter Dutton says they're going to vote against Labor's emissions reduction target, so do the Nationals, but the moderate Liberals who just got completely annihilated in the election are saying, wait up a bit, we need to talk about this, it should go to the party room, we should at least have a discussion. Bridget Archer, who actually hung on to the hypermarginal Tasmanian seat of Bass, said they should look to find a bipartisan approach and other moderates, both those who kept their seats and those who are now out of parliament, are speaking out as well. 
So I think really this goes to the heart of, this is sort of emblematic of the massive division in the coalition, sort of almost existential division in the coalition that they're going to have to play out and it's only just starting really. This is going to come to the fore in the next election for sure because as uh, environment writer Graham Redfern pointed out in his column on Thursday, we're due to present new targets in 2025, new targets for 2035, and according to the Climate Convention, which we're a signatory to, they have to be tighter than the previous ones. So if the coalition is going to go to the next election, also due in 2020, around 2025, with a target that's less than the one that we've set by now, which is 43%, which was ratified this week, then where they, that would be proposing that we would be in breach of our treaty that we've signed. So they're kind of, that seems difficult for them, not impossible, but, you know, it's not uh, it's not unheard of, but it would be a very difficult argument to make that we should actually retract our ambition to a, a lower level than the one that we've already agreed to. So Labor has said it wants to legislate the 43% target. They can pass it in the House, but what about the Senate? How are the politics of that going to play out, Lenore? Uh, I think it'll be quite interesting. The Greens uh, obviously want a tougher target. But also one of the things the Greens have, I mean, they've said they'll talk to Labor and one of the things they've really highlighted is their absolute opposition to any new coal mines or any new gas fields being developed in line with what the International Energy Agency and everyone around the world says should not happen. But of course, Labor went to the election slightly fudging that issue. They said that if coal mines or other fossil fuel developments stacked up both environmentally and then commercially, then they would be approved. I think that was a politically cautious statement so that they couldn't be you know, hammered as being, you know, economic vandals, et cetera, et cetera. And they sort of implied that they didn't think that would happen very often. But there are a lot of coal and gas projects on the books in Australia. Before the election, Climate Analytics estimated that if all the proposed coal and gas projects in Australia went ahead, it'd add 8% to Australia's emissions. So that form of words got them through the election, but it's going to be actually put to the test now that they're in government. And I think that will be a real rub between Labor and the Greens, probably even more so than the debate over the emissions target, which actually doesn't have to be legislated anyway. And of course the target is a target, it's not a ceiling. Mm. Even under the coalition's previous target, they were likely to have exceeded that target even without doing anything very active to to do so. Just by sitting around. Yeah. (laughs) There's every possibility that it couldn't go higher than that. But obviously having a higher target does impose uh, higher requirements on the government to to drive this policy quicker and more, more dramatically. It was also interesting this week that in an interview with Catherine Murphy, the Labor Minister, Madeleine King, said that they were thinking about or mooting the idea of joining US President Biden's methane pledge, like to have a target for methane reductions. You know, methane is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas, but that feeds straight back into the long-held fears of the gas industry in Australia, refer back to those fugitive emissions and also the farming industry. So I think she's just testing the waters there. And it's interesting that she is. And Lenore, you said this at the very beginning, that we have committed to the Paris goal of keeping 
heating below one and a half degrees Celsius. If these gas fields do open, are we likely to meet that one and a half percent goal? Well, I mean, 43 percent reduction is already not entirely in line with the one and a half percent goal. And it depends on a lot of things. You know, some of the gas fields say that they will sequester greenhouse gases that are emitted in the mining process. But there's a lot of questions around that process and the extent to which it happens and the proportion of the fugitive emissions that get sequestered, et cetera, et cetera. And also, while the international accounting systems only actually count the emissions that are emitted in your country, we're mining this stuff or extracting this stuff in order to send it overseas and have it be burnt. And if you actually look at those emissions, then it's entirely unhelpful to the global goals. I mean, I think it's hard to square the idea that there's going to be this massive expansion in gas extraction in Australia, either with our goals or the intent of the international processes. So Anthony Albanese has been very firm that the climate wars are ending but are they? Uh, Well, it goes back (laughs) to the whole question of the perfect and the good, doesn't it, which we've been debating for I can't even remember how long. I can understand Labor's desire to proceed cautiously given what's happened to them politically over the last decade. Like, you can Mm. get that, right? But I can also understand the desire of the Greens and the Teals to hold Labor absolutely accountable for what their policy delivers in practice. And that's the tension. Now, if we approach this debate and this tension intelligently, instead of allowing it to become a rhetorical, meaningless debate like we've had for the last decade, then we will make progress. And the question will be the extent of that progress or we lapse back into dumbass wars. I really hope we can have an intelligent debate because I think there is a clear majority of the country and a clear majority in the parliament that wants to make progress. Next, undercover cops and underwater statues. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. What is it for you, Lenore? Uh, I am kind of fascinated by this story about a police operation last Sunday targeting protesters from Blockade Australia who were at a sort of farm slash training camp in the northwest of Sydney. The police say that a bunch of these protesters have now been charged because with offences including assault and destroying property. So that That sounds quite serious. But then the protesters started telling their side of the story, which began with uh, some of them noticing two armed men dressed in camouflage hanging around some hiding near their camp, who they went up to and said, you know, who are you? The armed camouflaged men apparently just stood, according to the protesters, just sat there very, very still trying to act as if they were invisible, and then one of them pulled out a radio and said, we're compromised, we're compromised. Sorry. (laughs) 
Um, and then not long after, a large black car sped in and the camouflaged compromised men jumped in and the protesters who at this point they say none of these people had identified themselves as police at all were trying to sort of sit on the bonnet of the car or stop the car leaving to figure out who these people were that had been hanging around their camp. So, I mean, obviously this is all going to be resolved in the court who which story is right or the extent to which the stories are right, but the idea of a camouflaged man standing very still as if he was invisible and then saying, I'm com- we're compromised, we're compromised. I don't know, that sticks in my head. Um, Mike, can you top that? I don't know if I can top it. Mine's a very different story and my enjoyment of it is extremely childish. <laughs> um, archaeologists have found the head of a uh, statue of Hercules in a Roman-era cargo ship uh, that was the Wreck was actually discovered more than 100 years ago, and they've been pulling up stuff out of it ever since. Um, so they, they found this head, which is twice life-size, so it's enormous. And the, one of the archaeologists describing it said, it has a big beard, a very particular face and short hair. There is no doubt that it is Hercules. <laughs> and you can see why he would say that, because obviously they'd be looking, they found the rest of the statue, and they, you know, they were very excited to find the head that matches it. But the picture that accompanies it, it seems to be of extremely misshapen, well, not misshapen, you know, formless shape. It's a blob, it. right? It looks like a rock. If you saw it's it, if you saw it, it, it would be a rock. When you look a bit more closely, maybe you could see the outline of a face. It, it isn't like, to, to our inexpert eyes, it isn't obviously Hercules. Well, it's not the first thing I thought when I saw it. It is a really exciting thing. Archaeological story and a great story, but I took childish delight to the point with it. The photos with that story are really great, so do get on theguardian.com and look it up. Thank you so much, Lenore and Mike, for joining us today. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Joe Coning. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Laurie Murphy-Oates is off on a very well-deserved holiday, so Jane Lee will be back with you on Monday, and we'll see you then. <laughs>